Good morning and happy new year to you all. And as uh, we enter into a new year, it's not uncommon for well, us to have thoughts about just how time has passed, how time has changed, and even you know, the things in our past that we, that we can remember. Now, growing up as a young man, I can remember very distinctly, there, were three, there was a three-letter acronym that brought more fear, more trepidation, more anxiety into the hearts of, of young men than any other. It wasn't FBI, CIA, DEA, or even IRS. No, it was DTR. If you're a young man of my age, you remember what that meant? DTR, which defining the relationship. <laughs> you know, that time when you started seeing a, a girl and, uh, or a guy, and you realize, well, we need to get on the same page. Are we serious? Are we boyfriend and girlfriend? Are we exclusive? And you have to sit down and, and have a talk with one another and just define, well, where is this going? Where are we at before you can move forward? Now, when I first started dating Liz, we, well, we had to define the relationship. And me being a master communicator, <laughs> not supposed to laugh yet. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's obvious that we liked her. And I just said, well, so uh, uh, are, you, are you like my girlfriend now? And gentlemen, that's how it's done. <laughs> it works every time from my experience. But you know, as as we, you know, as people who are Christians and you know, we, oftentimes we talk about our, you know, we have a, a phrase that we talk about in relationship with Christ, where we say, you know, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And while this potentially has multiple problems with it. I, I understand the impulse. It's, we don't want to talk about Christianity as it's some you know, formal thing where you know, have this vast chasm between you and God, but, but that God is intimately involved in your, in your life. But the problem with causing, calling it a relationship is, well, what does that even mean? We have plenty of relationships. You know, I have a relationship with my parents, my wife, and my children. All look, that look vastly different. I have a relationship with my enemies, which looks even more vastly different. I even have a relationship with this stage in that I am standing upon it and it is supporting me. Right? A relationship is just how two things are connected. And when we talk about how things are connected between us and God, well, what do we mean by that? In what ways does God relate to us as people? Is it as a king to his subjects? Is it as a is it as a, a husband to his wife, a father to his children, a friend to a friend? And if you know your scriptures, well, well, all of these are used to talk about our relationship with God. But underlying each of these is, is an idea that connects us to God, the idea of covenant, the idea that, that God has made a promise to us. And so a covenant is it's like a promise on steroids. It's an agreement between two parties. And in particular, the agreement that God has with his people. That you are called to be this and to do these things, and I will be your God. And throughout the scriptures, there's many different covenants. And it, and it guides the life of the people of God. One of those is known as the Mosaic Covenant, right? It's like after God rescued the people from Egypt brought them out of slavery, 
He brought them to, to Sinai, and, and Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. These are the things that you're supposed to do. I've called you to be a people, to, to reveal to the world what I'm like, and these are the things that you must do. And the rest of the law, the rest of the Old Testament, from Exodus 20 on, is exploring and expounding upon the Ten Commandments, how you are to live before God. And God tells his people, he says, do these things and I will bless you. These are the blessings that you'll receive. And if you fail to do these things, these are the curses. These are the punishments that's going to happen. And all the people say, yes, we'll do it. We'll obey. But they don't obey, do they? And if you know, your, if you know the scriptures and you know the, well, from you know, the beginning to the end, you realize it's, it's one after another of times of unfaithfulness, of rebellion, of idolatry, of wickedness. And God sends punishments, other nations, to, as, a, as a way to say, hey, turn back to me. He gives them blessings for, for following him. He sets kings to help lead them. He does all these things in order to, to draw his people to follow him and to follow him with a whole heart. But all that he does doesn't bring them to loving him, to walking before him, to following him with a whole heart. So ultimately, the people go into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah, the, the, last, the last standing kingdom of God's people, in, uh, the Babylonians come in and tear down their walls, ransack their temples, lead the people, anyone who's not with, like the dredges of society, leads them away to Babylon to, to lose their identity and their land and their temple. And the people are wondering, has God forsaken us? Has God, if God is a king, has he abandoned his people? If God is a husband, has he divorced us? If God is a father, have we been disowned? For our failure, our inability to walk before him, are we done as God's people, as God's chosen people, because we continue to fail him? And it's out of that that we hear the words of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, if you would turn there in your Bibles. Jeremiah, he, he after expounding all of the, the, the misdeeds of the people and why they were sent into exile, and why, they, why they are no longer in God's land for them, but they are in a foreign land, and he declares to them, yet God is still faithful, and there is still hope. And so what we read in chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins 
no more. Now, this is perhaps one of the more famous passages of the scriptures as, as God gives hope to a people who are in exile and feel that they have so fallen short of God's expectations that they may no longer be a people, and God gives this comforting word to them that even though they have been sent out of the land, God is not done with them. And the basis for that is, is this, is that God gives his people forgiveness. He forgives them. What, what does it say? He says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now, as a people, when we hear the word forgiveness today, that I think we oftentimes mishear it. For many of us, that you know, we, we have a, a watered-down version of forgiveness. G.K. Chesterton noticed this, this tendency in people a, a long time ago and in The Secrets of Father Brown. Father Brown's kind of like a, a Sherlock Holmes-type detective, except he's a, a, a father. Um, and he tells a story of a beloved nobleman who fights his ne'er-do-well, good-for-nothing, rascalian brother in a duel, and he kills him. And so he flees. He runs away. And after many years, he returns, racked with guilt. He, you know, he's killed his brother in a duel. And all the townspeople say, we forgive you. Absolutely. Welcome back. We, you know, we, we love you. We, we forgive you. All is well. And then the priest said, you know, there's a conditional forgiveness based upon a time of penance and self-reflection. And all the people look at the priest and say, come on, can't you just be a little bit more compassionate? Can't you be more great? I mean, we're willing. Why can't you just forgive? We forgive. Why can't you just forgive? And then it turns out that it was not the beloved nobleman who killed his good-for-nothing brother. It was the good-for-nothing brother who killed the beloved nobleman and stole his identity. And all the people of the town Let's hang him. Let's kill him. He needs to be judged and punished for his sins. And the priest alone says, no, there is forgiveness based upon penance and self-reflection. And then he turns to the townspeople and he says, it seems to me that you only pardon the sins that you don't really think are sinful. You only forgive criminals when they commit what you don't regard as crimes, but rather than conventions. You forgive a conventional duel just as you forgive a conventional divorce. You forgive because there isn't anything to forgive, to be forgiven. This priest, you know, this priest's rebuke of the crowd could go equally as well to us. That what we forgive when we forgive, but what we mean by that is often no harm, no harm done. No harm, no foul. It barely inconvenienced me at all. But when we declare something as unforgivable, what we mean is, that was actually really genuinely bad. But God's forgiveness is not like our forgiveness. He says, I'm not going to just forgive you breaking some conventions. No, I will forgive your wickedness, he says. Your constant betrayal, your idolatry, your adultery, your, all the, thing, your, the ways that you've harmed other people. I will bring forgiveness to that for you. It is not the, it's not the 
forgiveness that we have in, in our society, this watered-down forgiveness where we mean, well, it re really didn't affect me that much. No, it's I've seen the full extent of your wickedness through a thousand years, and yet I will forgive it, and you will become my people again. Isn't it a good thing that God's not like us? And so while in the new covenant he promises forgiveness, he also promises a, a, a new dynamic in this relationship that he has with his people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now I made this distinction in, in my uh, Advent devotional when talking about a de facto versus de jour relationship. De jour is you know, where we get the word you know, jury and jurisprudence, it's in law versus de facto, which is in, in actuality, right? And what he's proclaiming and when he's saying, I will be their God and they will be my people is not a change in their de jour relationship. They already had one. It's not, you know, they've already signed the agreement. The change is in their de facto relationship. That while they, they had the, you know, they were under the agreement where they were God's people. They didn't act as such. They constantly turned to their own way. They constantly followed their own gods. They constantly did the things that God had called them and called them to not do. To illustrate this kind of distinction, um, when I was in seminary, towards the end of my seminary career, I worked as a, on a grounds crew for a while. And during that time... Um, the boss who oversaw the grounds crew, there was some restructuring happened, and he got promoted, so he's not only overseeing our department, but he's seeing, overseeing multiple departments. And they didn't want to fulfill his position, but they wanted to, to have somebody who's going to be kind of like a supervisor that's under him, but help overseeing our department. Now, I was just a part-time guy, but there was three you know, full-time guys in the midst of these part-time guys who were kind of candidates for this new position. I'm going to change their names for, uh, you know, privacy's sake, but, you know, uh, one of them, his name was Michael, and he was, he, you know, he had been the, the boss's right-hand man for, for years. Whenever the boss was out sick or had gone on vacation, he was the one who kind of oversaw the department, very good at what he did, uh, and, you know, well-respected. And then there's Tom, who he was probably like the most capable of us all. He had worked on farms from, you know, when he was an infant to, you know, he's, you know, 50 years old, could do anything, uh, really a brilliant guy. And then there was, there was David, who was the least experienced, known for being a bit of a hothead and a numbskull, but he ran a side business with the boss after hours. And what do you know, David was the one who was chosen to be the supervisor. And everybody was pretty upset with that. You know, whether, you know, the full-time guys, the part-time guys, I mean, you know, I had no necessarily a bone in the fight, but it's just he was this numbskull who really was bad decision-making, didn't have the experience. Why would he be chosen? And so on paper... He was the de jour leader. He was set to be the supervisor and to be the boss. And perhaps out of you know, sheer spite or malice or, or whatever, all of us instinctively would go into the beginning of the day and turn to Michael and say, well, what do we have on the docket for today? 
making it very clear that our true leader was not David. No matter what was on paper, we were looking to Michael. We wanted him to tell us what to do. Right? He was the de facto leader, the one that we respected, the one that we wanted to, to, to fall under in terms of supervision. And what God is saying to his people is that when this new covenant comes about, it's not going to be this change in the jour leadership where now I'm just actually going to be your God and you'll be my people. No, it is a change in uh, the de facto leadership that you, that the people of God, will actually become the people of God. And he says to them, I will write my law on your hearts. I will... Uh, I will put my law in their minds, not on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of the people that they will keep in step with all I've called them to be and to do in this world. They will become this new society that reveals me to the world. That their lives will be marked by victory rather than defeat, faithfulness rather than unfaithfulness, Holiness rather than sinfulness. It is this brilliant promise, this glorious thing that not only am I going to take care of sin's past, but I'm going to take care of the power of sin over the life of my people where they can walk before me with a whole heart. And so the people of God, they await this promise. And as Jesus comes in, he comes in as the one who is ushering in the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, he reminds us at the Lord's Supper. This is the promise to which my people are to partake. Not merely forgiveness of sins, but the power to walk before me with whole hearts. It's a great promise. And many of us, our vision of the Christian life is is one where it is constant defeat without victory. But this is not the promise of the New Testament, is it? This is not the promise of the Scriptures. The promise of the Scripture is that the Spirit of God will come and inhabit the lives of His people where they will be transformed in their hearts and minds and souls. That, that God's calling on them can be realized. But we also know that I have once again fallen short of that. That I have failed to live up to my end. That I once again need to find forgiveness and grace and mercy. That I need to seek the Lord with a whole heart. And in that, I have to trust him. Trust that his grace still welcomes me. And so the author of Hebrews, he reminds the people after quoting this passage and he says, well, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised 
is faithful. The author of Hebrews, he's, he's looking at this promise and saying, as, as the, the inheritors of such a promise, what are we supposed to do? To draw near by faith, to hold fast and unswervingly to our hope, to cling to it and allow God to change and transform us from day to day. Now, this is a different kind of service um, without a full sermon, and some of you may say, thank you. Um, but within, my, within the tradition I, I, I grew up in, and it was not uncommon for at the beginning of the year to renew our covenant to the Lord. 